in this episode of the Critical Oxygen Podcast. But you're otherwise not doing very challenging strength workouts. Those are reserved for the gym. Those are sort of like your speed workouts for the week, your harder workouts. But your zone two for strength is these body weight workouts. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Critical Oxygen Podcast, where we help you optimize your physiology and maximize your athletic potential. I'm your host, Phil Batterson, and today we are joined by Jason Fitzgerald. Jason is the host of the top-ranked Strength Running Podcast and the founder of Strength Running, an award-winning running blog with hundreds of thousands of monthly readers. Jason is a 239 marathoner and a USATF certified coach. He's coached thousands of endurance athletes to faster finishing times and fewer injuries with his results-oriented coaching philosophy. Jason, welcome to the show. Oh, I'm excited to be here, man. Thank you. Yeah, so we, we we had started the conversation, and I paused us just to uh, you know kind of kind of give everybody the 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 backstory. So Jason Fitzgerald, awesome, 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 you know, social media sort of stuff, strength running, all things, and he was asking me because I was telling him that I I live butted up to about I don't even know how many thousands of acres of of national forest land, but he was like, oh you're probably running a hundred miles a week. And I was like, you know, unfortunately I'm not because I have a torn labrum in my hip and I just have to be really careful with, with the amount of, uh, you know, pounding that I actually do. But I do two, two days a week of, um, of running. And it's, it's, it's mostly cause we live right on the, a Canyon that then goes down to a river. So I, I run up and down the Canyon. So I get, I get four, hundred feet of gain within a mile, you know, coming, coming up. So legit right there. Yeah. So I'm like, I'm like, okay, well, I'm not going to be training for, you know, like road running and stuff like that. If anything, I'm going to be, you know, training for like mountain running. Like that would be, that would be my thing. Well, with where you live, you probably have uh, a good training venue for an aspiring mountain runner with that kind of elevation gain, all Mm -hmm. that kind of trails and off-road surfaces. You're on your way. Yeah, no, it's, it's awesome. It's, it's so much fun. And back, do you ever, have you ever run the, the incline down in Colorado Springs? Yeah. The Manitou incline. Yeah. 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 I've, uh, I've broken 30 minutes twice, which is my, nice. my Colorado Springs claim to fame. <laughs> yeah. So, so when I was doing my master's down in Colorado Springs in, I was like 2017 to 2019, that's like, that was my Saturday hangout spot. And I, I eventually got to the point where I'd wear a a ruck pack that was like between forty and sixty pounds, depending on the day. And I would try to do it the the incline plus um, whatever the the trail is that goes down as many the times as possible. Trail, I think it yeah, might the be. bar trail. So I, I I did I think I did that three or four times in a day one time. Oh my um, god! And I mean, that's that's a solid you know. 12, 15 miles total with an extraordinary yeah. amount of gain. Yeah. So, so, so my PR on the incline was like, I think 24. Like, I, I That's like really good, man. I, I take, I tapered for it. I, you know, I did, I did everything I think right. I was like, okay, I'm just going to go out and I'm just going to crush it. And then I was talking to somebody on Instagram and he was just like, oh, yeah. Have you ever seen this? Uh, I, I can't remember the guy's name. It's like Remy, Remy something, but, one of one of the best mountain runners in the world who actually has the record on the incline. Get, do you know what the record is? It's like 16, 17, 18 minutes, somewhere in that time Se- frame. 17. It, bananas. Yeah. I was like, I was like, I thought 
I crushed it by doing 24. And you know, that, that is, that is pretty fast. Like I, you're, I think the second person I've ever met who actually has gone under 30. And that's just because I don't have a very, you know, wide, wide circle of, of runner friends and stuff. But, um, everyone else was like, Oh my gosh, I'm lucky to, you know, get up it in 45 minutes to an hour. The key is to simply not stop moving. Like if yep. you just keep going up at a consistent clip, you'll probably get there in about 30 to 40 minutes. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think any faster than 30 minutes. And it's like, you kind of have to either be speed walking or, or running part of it. I'm really only able to run like five or 10% of the incline. And then I'm basically hiking up it, but it's, it's really hard. And I probably would have gotten an extra 30 seconds if I didn't like stop to take a picture and, you know, I wasn't really going a hundred percent for time. Like mm-hmm. it sounded like you're tapering and, yeah. and really <laughs> treating this like a, <laughs> yeah. a regional track, you know, <laughs> championship or something. <laughs> yeah, no, it was, it was one of those things where I was just like, I, I'm going to, because, because I had, I had had success in the past, you know, like going under, going under 30 and I was like, okay, you know, that feels pretty good. It's pretty, you know, pretty fun. And then I was like, okay, but I, I really want to see, cause I was, I was really fit at the end of my master's degree, just because I had been doing tons of lifting and then I was doing some cycling stuff and I had access to like a physiology lab, like within my master's that like my, my master's advisor, we, nobody else was using it. So he's like, yeah, if you want to do testing on yourself, just make sure you clean up afterwards and that's all you got to do. So it, it was just a really cool environment to be able to, you know, experiment with that sort of stuff. See, see what, what the limits of my body were. And at the time too, I was like, Oh, like, you know, on a whim one day, I was like, I'm just going to hike to the top of Pike's Peak. You know, we're just going to do bar trail and we're just going to see how it goes. Um, that was kind of a catastrophic failure. Not quite. I got to the top and then I was like, I'm, I'm so spent. There's no way I'm going back down. Um, so I actually had to hitchhike back down. <laughs> um, but luckily I found, I found a group of people who, you know, were about my age at the time. And I was just like, look guys, like I, I hiked up to the top. It was a little bit too much for me to handle. Could you guys give me a ride back to Colorado Springs? <laughs> and oh, they did. No. <laughs> oh man, you are writing checks. Your body can't catch. I know. I know. So, so I, I think, I think that, you know, it's like that, that all leads into, you know, you have been somebody that I've followed for a really, really long time. And that's actually, I think how we, we started talking was, um, you know, I, I, was fortunate enough to to be able to get onto your podcast, but I told you that one of the things that I watched was like your, um, you know, hip, and you know, kind of like prehab, you know, sort of like like workout video that you posted. I don't even know, maybe like ten years ago or something at this point. And I was like, yeah, I was following that, and that's actually like I was able to stay pretty healthy for a long time. So if you don't mind giving the listeners just a little bit of background of you know like who you are, what your uh, you know true profession is he's a running coach, but it's a little bit, it's more than that. And then what your philosophy with training is, that'd be awesome. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I've, I've been a runner myself for pretty much as long as I can remember. I was one of those kids that went out for the cross country team as a freshman in high school, showed up in basketball shoes and long mesh shorts. I thought cross country was like track. So I actually intended to be high jumping. And then mm-hmm. I very quickly realized that, oh no, it's just all running in cross country. And, uh, I was unable to finish a 2.9 mile run my first day at practice. And I remember that very short, easy run 
made me feel like I had been run over by a truck for like a week. <laughs> and for some weird reason, I think it was because, you know, the, the coach was funny. The, the guys on the team were really funny. I stuck with the sport. And I think like a lot of runners, I just got obsessed with improvement. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I was a basketball player before I started running. And there's just a lot of subjective things that go on in team sports. You know, oh, we lost the game because my teammate didn't pass me the ball or my coach didn't put in our best player or all these things that are outside of your control. And what I loved about running was that most of things are in your control. You mm-hmm. choose how much you train, uh, how well you execute that training. So I pretty quickly into my first season of cross country just fell in love with the sport and ran cross country, indoor track, outdoor track, all four years of my high school career Then I went and ran at Connecticut College and and did the same thing. It was just totally obsessed with getting faster and, you know, getting involved in in the track community at Connecticut College. And, you know, when I graduated, most of my running friends sort of stopped running and they started pursuing their careers and things like that. But I just couldn't stop training and Mm -hmm. really got into some other races that I hadn't run before. You know, I started running triathlons, duathlons, uh, some longer cross country races, and then some of those longer road races, like a lot of us get into like the half marathon and the marathon. And after my first marathon is, it was really like a, an important hinge point in my running career because I got hurt in my comeback to running after the 2008 New York city marathon, you know, it had gone okay for me. Uh, I think I ran 244. Uh, but I was hoping to run a lot faster and, you know, as there's a lot of college, you know, track guys, I was like, Oh, a six minute pace is so slow. Yeah. I'm going to be negative splitting, you know, this marathon and running five thirty pace through central park to finish up the New York city course. And that didn't happen at all. There were senior citizens blowing by me in the race and it was a very humbling experience. Yeah. And I think it's important to have a humbling experience at a marathon every once in a while. Mm-hmm. It brings you back to earth a little bit. And it was at that point when I was, I got injured, I had this IT band syndrome injury that just wouldn't quit. And I didn't run for six months. Wow. I saw four physical therapists. I spent most of the time just sitting on the couch, watching reruns of house and eating sleeves of Oreos. It was a very depressing time for me, but I realized if I wanted to continue to do what I loved, I really needed to get my training right, figure out this chronic cycle of injuries that had been plaguing me for years Mm -hmm. because I was very inconsistent. I just kept getting hurt. Mm -hmm. And it was at that moment that I, you know, learned from all these PTs that I was seeing, I started being a a much better student of the sport. And that's when I just sort of got into reading every single running book that I could get my hands on. And strength running was really born out of that time period where Mm -hmm. I started getting a lot more consistent with strength training. I started being more strategic with my own running because I was like, look, I'm getting hurt all the time. Excuse me. I'm getting hurt all the time. I think there's something wrong with my training. Let's make some modifications so that I'm really prioritizing injury resilience. And I started, I started running really well. You know, I was able to run more miles per week. I ended up running a, a new marathon PR and it really opened my eyes to the fact that we don't have to just keep banging our head against the wall and, and getting these poor results and these chronic injuries. So strength running was really born out of my own frustrations mm-hmm. with my failings in the sport. And my entire goal right now is to get runners to think more strategically about their training, 
to avoid some of these big common mistakes, to get strong, to focus on best practices. Let's not chase any fads or shiny red balls that, you know, are, are, are really exciting. Um, but ultimately, you know, I think my training philosophy is, is really a big focus on the fundamentals, mm-hmm. on hard work, on consistency, and on not taking any shortcuts. You know, I think we're, we're in a very fortunate time period right now where I think we pretty much know how to train distance runners. I, I don't really think we are going to have any dramatic breakthroughs in training science in the next 20 years, mm-hmm. you know, because if you go back to the 50s, the era of Roger Bannister, everyone was doing extremely low mileage, very high intensity. Mm-hmm. Well, we learned that that isn't quite as comprehensive as we thought. And then there was the era of the 70s and 80s and, you know, um, you know, marathon Billy was winning the Boston marathon and, and that was an area of very high mileage, Mm -hmm. but relatively low intensity. And, you know, then we sort of flailed around a little bit in the nineties. And now there's been a pretty good resurgence of American distance running, especially on the women's side. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we kind of know how to train runners. And so my training philosophy is pretty much the fundamentals and best practices with an emphasis on, building the aerobic metabolism with an emphasis on getting strong and staying healthy so that we can run consistently. Mm-hmm. No, I, I love that. I, I tell, I was telling my fiance this morning is like my framework for developing any endurance athlete is consistent, consistency, specificity, and progression. I love, you know, it. and, and it's, I think it's especially hard to keep that consistency in running because, you know, what was the stat like, you know, 72% of runners or something along those lines will get injured per year or like, you know, something crazy along those lines. Um, and it, it, and so that's why I only run two, two days a week because I actually am able to progress in my, in my running and my hill running by doing a lot of cycling work because that's hardly any eccentric loading. And then I go and I just like, I, I also have fun just running up and down hills. Like it's, it's one of those things where it's like, it's kind of punishing, but it's also like pretty freeing to be able to run as fast as you can up and down the hills. Like yesterday I was like, I was running right next to the river and then, you know, like the, the Canyon 500 feet up is like right on this side. And it's just like, you know, it's one of those things where you just, you just don't get that, um, with cycling indoors. So I was just like, you know, from a, from a flow state, it was just, you know, I, I was feeling it. It was awesome. But, I, but yeah, I had to really take a step back and be like, okay, well, what's going to keep me consistent in terms of running. And it really has been reducing to, you know, right now, two days a week. Um, but it's, it's tough. You know, that reminds me of, of something that um, I've been thinking a lot about in my coaching practice, which is, you know, the, the risk of injury as it relates to your training intensity. You know, there's an exponential injury risk increase when you start running a lot faster. So mm-hmm. speed is a huge driver of running injuries. And so you, one of the things that I've changed in my own training is, I don't run the brutally hard workouts that I used to run. And mm-hmm. I'm much, I much more err on the side of more aerobic base training. And mm-hmm. it's funny that you mentioned uh, your bike because I just got a, um, a Wahoo Kicker Core indoor trainer. Heck yeah. And I'm going to be setting up my road bike on the trainer 
especially now in the winter time, it's just a, usually a little bit more difficult to get in as much running as I normally do. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not getting into the the beautiful front range here in Colorado like I normally do and have all those uh, those amazing trails for me to run on. Can't do that in the winter. So I'm planning on just adding hours and hours of indoor cycling to my training just to build that aerobic metabolism, just to layer on hours of zone two work mm-hmm. so that when I do go running, I can maybe focus a little bit more on quality and that's just one way that I've subtly changed how I approach training to prioritize injury resilience while at the same time focusing on what actually is going to make you a better runner, which is not all these brutally hard workouts, but it's volume and consistency over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's one thing that, that we do see is and I, I've been doing a deep dive into like the literature of, of, you know, like what is really the most effective, um, way to approach training. And you, you touched on this, right. In, in the Roger Bannister era, they were just doing, you know, interval training all the time. So that's just like, you know, if you think about it, high intensity training, so they were just doing high intensity training. And then you had this, this shift, right. The pendulum shift to massive amounts of volume. And now we're, we're kind of, I think, writing the ship and getting right, like kind of more into the middle of it. And it's like, you know, it, it makes sense with, with almost anything you, you have to have, you have to have high intensity, you have to have low intensity, but the big key is, is that that low intensity has to be low enough in order for you to absorb the, the mileage that you're doing and not induce more fatigue than it's actually worth. Because I think that's where people do, especially in running, this is where people do their easy days too hard and then it just gets to a point where, you know, you have those overuse injuries and, and other things like that because you're not allowing that easy work to actually allow you to accumulate volume, allow you to stave off fatigue and recover. You're just digging yourself into a deeper and deeper hole. And I think you – did you post recently, you know, like kind of like how much, uh, you know, fatigue to adaptation you get per, per different uh, intensity that you're, that you're doing? Yeah, there was a it was a quick and easy graphic on uh, relative recovery from different effort zones. Mm-hmm. So zone one, you're going to be fully recovered the next day. Zone two, you're also going to be recovered by the next day. Mm-hmm. But things start getting more and more extended if you get into zone three, zone four, zone five. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think the current focus on zone two is a good focus because I think it's slowing enough runners down so that they can do more volume while reducing their injury risk. And then also create an environment in which they're actually absorbing all of the adaptations that, that they should be absorbing from all that volume. Mm -hmm. Um, and then also like, it just allows you to actually do a hard workout where if you're running in zone three, five days a week, and then you go to run a track workout, it's going to be just really challenging. Your legs are going to be, you know, heavy, fatigued, uh, a little bit lethargic. So I think there's a lot of reasons to to slow running down. And, you know, thinking back to my college track days where, you know, we tried to run every single distance run at seven minute mile pace, mm-hmm. no matter if it was the day after a really hard workout or a long run the day after a race and us going to a party the night before where maybe we had one or more Bud Lights, mm-hmm. uh, Phil. I, we probably didn't have more than two in college. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but, no, never more than two. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, when you're when you're in those situations, you've got to just be realistic about what your physiology can can handle. Mm-hmm. And, and I think one of the big mistakes that we made was like, look, 
You know, we've got a chip on our shoulder. We're these college track runners. We are good. We can run seven minute pace. Mm -hmm. This is not hard for us. Our race paces are substantially faster than this, but we weren't really taking a a physiological approach to our Mm -hmm. training on easy runs. We were taking a you know, boneheaded college bro, the, <laughs> you know, the ego, on our training. The, the ego approach. Right. And that's, I, I, so I was fortunate enough. I think I talked, talked to this on, on your podcast, but I was fortunate enough to actually be able to go back and run at the junior college level when I was like 24 or something like that. And I think that really helped me not get caught into, um, you know, some of that ego training, like, like we're talking about, because, what I noticed is that like the, the best guys on the team, yet there are some guys, right. Who are, you know, those, those like anomalies, those genetic freaks who, you know, like they could do their training at seven minute miles and still crush everybody. But they're the, the guys that were the most effective were actually normally the ones that would run like recovery runs the slowest. And, you know, they would like, it, it would be like laughably slow. Like they'd be just be shuffling. And then, but they were always able to get up for, the races get up for the, you know, like the interval works that way we would do. And there is something to be said about almost, you know, like the zone two is good, but I think, I think what people still overlook is the fact that you're just accumulating so much damage, especially if you're running on pavement that it might even be better to just like reduce it even more. Um, do you ever have, like, if you, if an athlete came to you, have you ever recommended them to just like do walk runs? If like, for example, I have people come to me all the time. They're like, yeah, my zone two is, is 170 beats per minute. I'm like, no, it's not like, it's definitely not. So let's actually figure it out. And then they're like, well, I can't maintain 130, 135 beats per minute by running. What do I do? So, so what, how would you respond to somebody in that sort of situation? In, in that situation, I think a, a, a walking protocol is is a good one because we obviously can't be running at a heart rate of 170 beats per minute every day. That is, you know, for most people, that's a, a zone four, zone five effort. Mm-hmm. And that's going to lead you to get hurt or overtrained or simply burned out psychologically from your training that you just don't really have the drive to continue moving forward with it. So you know, I, I started coaching a, a runner a long time ago who was only a couple months into her running journey. She had just started. She had never done sports before. She was sedentary and a daily smoker. And the funny thing was she had a lot of talent. It's almost mm-hmm. just like she started running. It's like, oh, actually, you're a talented athlete. You've just never done any athletics before. Mm-hmm. But we need to sort of wake up your aerobic system uh, you haven't really done any exercise for decades. You've been smoking every day for decades. And what I found was on the one hand, yes, you need to take some walk breaks. We need to get that heart rate down a little bit. But on the other hand, there are some runners who simply need a lot of exposure to exercise and then their heart rate sort of just levels out a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think this is often called aerobic deficiency syndrome where with very little aerobic development, either, you know, your aerobic system doesn't really know how to be in a zone one, zone two mm. effort level. You're just constantly getting into that high zone four, zone five effort. This can be pretty common in a lot of um, power or team sport athletes who don't really do much aerobic exercise, but they're doing a lot of high intensity work. They might be doing a lot of power and strength work. So 
the anaerobic system is, is very highly developed, but their aerobic system is not. And so the, the key is just a lot of aerobic exercise. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, for this particular runner, I, I tolerated heart rate zones for her that were higher than I normally would have liked. Mm-hmm. But I realized at the time, like, look, we just, we, we need to sort of get you consistent for two months. And if I was really adamant about keeping your heart rate under 140 beats per minute, you'd literally never be running. So there's a little bit of a balance here. Like, of course you can't be running in zone three all the time. And of course you need to be doing some running. So we've got to split the difference often, Mm -hmm. but for the most part, try to stay in the right zones. Even like you were saying, low zone two, or maybe even high zone one. Uh, I, I just did a really, uh, fun podcast with Matt Daniels. He's an ultra marathoner, but you know, previously he was a 359 miler. So he wow. certainly have some, has some speed Yeah, and he loves zone one running. He's like, mm-hmm. oh yeah, I'm running like 11 minute mile pace. And I'm like, wow, for a 359 miler, that is an absolute shuffle. But mm-hmm. he realizes and recognizes the compounding benefit of all that low intensity training that, you know, even for someone who's that talented, if he's doing it, well, that should tell all of us, you know, mere mortals that there is still benefit in doing it. And we mm-hmm. should try to be as consistent as possible with it. Yeah. That's, that's, that's something that on this podcast has kind of been, you know, an uphill battle because within the research community, right. We're always looking for what is the optimal way to improve X, right. Like, you know, whether that's VO2 max training, whether that's, you know, what sort of training intensity distribution should we have, you know, all of these different sort of things. And I think sometimes those ideas get a little bit, uh, there's too much importance, say, you know, like on a, a specific threshold or on a specific adaptation that we're trying to target and you know, for example, you'll hear hear people talking, well, you have to exercise right at that borderline of zone two, where your lactate is, you know, this millimole or whatever it is. Because if you don't, then you're not going to maximize the benefits to your mitochondria, your mitochondrial function, right? You know, and while that's probably true, especially in running, and I, I'll keep saying this is running is a different beast than, you know, something like, like rowing or, I mean, we'll say cycling or cross country skiing or other things like that, which are primarily concentric contractions. Running is a combination of both. So you're, you're going to be getting a lot of damage. If you're running at your zone two versus running, you know, like zone one, like the ultra marathoner that you're talking about, like you're, you're going to be getting the majority of those adaptations. And, you know, yes, while you're, you might be leaving a few adaptations on the table, I can almost guarantee you that that person who runs slower compared to the person who runs faster is probably going to have more consistency and more longevity in the sport. And that's really what we see is, is people who are consistent. Um, Paula Radcliffe was getting better her entire career, right? And, you know, her VO2 max was going down, but her efficiency was going up. So it's, it's that consistency over time that's really going to result in, you know, you actually realizing your full potential. And I, and it's almost, yes, there are limitations when you do get, you know, start to get really like a lot older and other things like that. But 
I think for most of us, we don't truly realize our full potential because we are unable to stay, say, consistent for years and years and years. And that's why Elliot Kipchoge has been so good and so consistent or is because he's been so consistent. So that's kind of my philosophy on it. Yeah, I think it's a really good one because, you know, this this very much reminds me of blending the art and science of running into mm-hmm. one approach where, you know, and, and forgive me, I'll, I'll poke the uh, the researchers a little bit and all the, the physiologists that's, that's on, a, totally on a physiologist fine. podcast. My God, I am bold. <laughs> but you, you can't just be a scientist as a coach because mm-hmm. you're, you're going to fall into that trap of saying, well, we're not maximal, maximizing the mitochondrial adaptations. Well, for your average 45-year-old recreational runner, the goal isn't to maximize mitochondrial adaptations. We are so much getting lost in the weeds here. Mm-hmm. This person is probably only running 30 miles a week and is inconsistent. So mm-hmm. we need to really go after the low-hanging fruit first and, and think a little bit more holistically of, well, maybe this person, it's okay if they're not maximizing mitochondrial efficiency because we are maximizing longevity. We are maximizing consistency in the sport. And and I might say those are more important, especially for pretty much any runner is, is that consistency in the sport. You know, I don't Mm -hmm. think there are any magic workouts or secrets to success in the sport of running. But with that said, if there is a secret, it's consistency. That's the mm-hmm. secret sauce because you're, even if you have the perfect training program, if you can only do it for a month or two at a time before you have to take time <clears> off <throat> because you're hurt or you're overtrained or you're just psychologically burned out from your training or it just requires you to be on every single day that, you know, you're just like enough of this. I just can't do it anymore. Mm-hmm. Well, you're never going to be consistent. So you know, I like to say I'd rather you be 10% undertrained and, you know, quote unquote, under optimized, mm-hmm. but healthy and excited about the sport mm-hmm. standing on the starting line. <clears throat> yeah, no, I, I 100% agree. And I think, again, that's where that is where the the translation from the science to like truly coaching is is really important because <clears throat> when we look at the research, you know, it's, it's, oh, well, what's the optimal way to improve VO2 max? Well, we took individuals through two to three training set, you know, VO2 max workouts every single week for six weeks and their VO2 max improved, you know, 8%, whatever we want to call it. But if you ca- if you try to keep somebody on a, a, a training program like that, good luck, your adherence would be essentially zero. You know, you'd have people getting injured, especially if it's running. Um, you'd have people not wanting to do it, or they would start to, uh, you know, just refuse to actually do it. When I, I, I did a, a high intensity interval training study when I was doing my PhD and you'd be, I, I don't think you'd be surprised, but I took sedentary individuals through seven high intensity interval training sessions. So what we would do is we would do one minute on one minute off. And the one minute was like really hard. And then it was like, you know, as much rest as you needed. And we'd repeat that every other day for 14 days. And just within that towards the end, like you could like seven sessions, people were still being like, I don't know, like, and this is only a 30 minute workout too. So this is like, this is like short periods of time. And it's not something that's really ever talked about is, you know, it's like that, that is maybe optimal for improving VO2 max, but it is not optimal for long-term enjoyment and, 
and, and other things. And I, I saw something the other day that was maybe it was, you know, Huberman lab, um, you know, podcast episode where they were talking about how there was this study that was done. It was done in mice, mice or rats. And they would, they would give one group of animals the ability to freely train and run whenever they wanted. And, and mice and rats love to run. Um, so they could do it whenever they wanted. But then the other group, when, when one mouse was running or one rat was running, were forced to run during the time. And the ones that chose to run or chose to exercise had, you know, like they had, you know, benefits in their metabolic, uh, you know, uh, metabolic sort of uh, markers, their physiological markers. And, you know, it's like you can't ask a rat if they feel better or something like that. But the other group didn't have any benefits really to the exercise because they were being forced. So it's one of those things where it's like, just the choice or just the importance of like, I want to be here doing this workout today, you know, might actually be one of the reasons why you would improve or not improve based on whatever the training is. So you have to, you have to, as a coach, make things enjoyable for the athlete as well, or else they're not going to adhere to it. So yeah, it's this, it's this, it's this balance and this is what I love about talking to, you know, coaches like yourself is, is you recognize that, you know, yeah, like the science does say one thing, but how are we at, how can we actually translate that into helping our athletes stay consistent, um, want to do something like this? And I, I joke around as like, you know, if, if somebody came out with a study that was like, oh, the single best thing you could do for health and longevity would be to swim at 5 a.m. in a dark pool at 60 degrees every single morning for 30 to 60 minutes, I wouldn't, I would probably have negative, that would not be optimal for me because I hate swimming in pools. And, you know, and, you know, so, so those outcomes wouldn't actually be optimal for me. It would be optimal for whoever the study was done on. But for me personally, I don't like swimming. It, it you know, it wouldn't be optimal for me. So, that's like we, we do talk about, you know, like reading articles and then making sure that they translate to who you are and that you respond appropriately to them. And that's it's the uh, it's this idea of like, you know, taking the science for what it is and, and truly reading it at a deeper level. Not to mention the fact that, you know, this this VO2 max study to me is is kind of funny because on the one hand, VO2 max isn't as tightly correlated with your actual race performance as we would like to think it is. You know, everyone's yes. like, oh, I want to improve my VO2 max. And I'm like, why? I want to improve my race performance. Mm -hmm. And that is a very critical distinction. Mm -hmm. One is just a physiological marker that, I don't know, you really only know about if you get into a lab and have it tested. The other is the, the thing the entire sport revolves around, which is your finish time, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And so when, when I see studies like that, I'm like, okay, that's like kind of cool. But on the one hand, my goal as a coach isn't just to improve your VO2 max right. and two VO2 max workouts a week for eight weeks seems to me like a just a, a training schedule that is much too difficult for most runners. Mm -hmm. You know, when I look back at maybe you know, my, my college track program and, and what I was running in track, maybe for the last eight weeks of a track season, we're running two VO2 max workouts a week. But at the same time, we are 
20 year old college athletes who are somewhat competitive mm-hmm. and, and can handle all that. You know, we're, we're, we're not 40, 45, 50 years old. Uh, we don't have jobs. You know, we are drunk on testosterone, which mm-hmm. is the place to be if you're training really hard. Mm-hmm. And so you've really got to take some of these things into consideration when you're designing training, because if you're a new coach and you see this study and you're like, oh man, this is great. Let me implement this in my training today. And it's like, well, hold on a second. Hold on. You got to take everything with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. And, and I feel like I'm one of these coaches that like, believes in everything and nothing at the same time. <laughs> I am the ultimate it depends guy mm-hmm. because I, I think VO2 max is important, but I also don't really think it's too important. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? It's, it's, is it in the proper context? Is it important for what we're actually training to achieve? And is it important for you as an individual? Because sometimes you know, you're, it's just not something we should focus on at mm-hmm. this stage of your running career. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, on the one hand, I love studies, but on the other hand, I'm like, you know, let's, let's really, you know, take this with a big grain of salt. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the challenging thing because on social media, right. You know, like I want to help people get better. <clears throat> I want to help. Like my, my whole tagline is, you know, help people optimize their physiology to maximize their endurance potential. But the, the challenge is, is that requires you almost to have these like clickbaity titles or these, you know, like, 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 uh, larger than life, uh, you know, explanations or, or whatever it is. And you, you said it like a, like a true academic, like you, you're closer related to the researchers than I think you, than I think, you know, is, when you meet somebody who truly is like a good scientist, if you ask them a question, they'll be like, well, it depends. And the, the number one way of detecting if someone's kind of bullshitting you or not is if they're, if they know all the answers right away, or if they say, okay, well, it depends. Let's get more of the context behind all of this. And this is something I talk uh, to another coach who comes on the podcast regularly, Aaron Geyser. He's, he said, he said, yeah, we, it's context first and then content second. So you have to figure out who the athlete is that is sitting in front of you and what they want to, what they want to do with their race, how stressed they are on a daily basis, what they have going on in their family life, all this sort of stuff. Because once you understand the context, then you can start to shape the content in the training plan that you're actually giving to somebody. And it, that, that has been something that is just like, you know, kind of light bulb moment you know, went off for me when he started to explain that. And, you know, you're, you're explaining the exact same thing as like, and I think the, the, then the challenge becomes is like, okay, well, uh, you know, is VO2 max really important? Because if you, if you're running uh, an ultra marathon, most likely VO2 max is not very important for your performance, right? You know, you're not going to be exercising at VO2 max, but if you've never done VO2 max work before, then maybe VO2 max might be good for you because you stand to to make a lot of improvements there. Um, and it's funny you mentioned that because during my master's degree, my master's degree was based on predictors of endurance performance. And the the three that have been postulated to be like the best predictors of performance are VO2 max, where your second threshold is occurring, and then your economy and your, or your economy or efficiency. Putting those together is... is should get a pretty good idea of what your performance is. So I did a whole study that was like, we measured, you know, 
all of those variables and then we correlated those with uh with cycling endurance performance it was a a 40 kilometer time trial on a bike and indeed when you put them all together it's those are all highly or you know together those are highly predictive of, of performance but alone they're not very predictive of performance especially when you have groups of individuals who are very similar to each other in terms of like vo2 max but <clears throat> I, I think phil having you say i talk about running like a scientist hearing that from a physiologist might be one of the best compliments that <laughs> i have ever gotten so thank you very much yeah I, I think that comes from almost a different perspective i i almost think a little bit like a lawyer like okay. i just want everything i say to be defensible because mm-hmm. I, I think starting this entire job of what I do, all of my work on the internet, I realize my work is all public. And because of that, it is widely open to criticism. Mm -hmm. And I want to make sure that everything I say is as accurate as I can make it. And I I have reasons for saying what I say. And so Mm -hmm. I, I don't, I want to be as clear as possible. And so I'm almost thinking that every piece of communication I put out on the internet is like a contract. I want the language to be a little dialed in. And, and I'm very aware of the fact that most things exist on a spectrum and to have a binary way of thinking is usually a dead end way of thinking, especially Mm -hmm. when it comes to exercise science. So thanks very much for that compliment. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I would love to ask you like, if we're going to talk about the things that we should be doing in training to make us better runners after Mm -hmm. we've said VO two max is kind of non important, but it is. And you know, we're being a little wishy-washy on everything. What's actually important. Like what should we focus on in our training? Like what are the actionable, Mm -hmm. you know, workouts, principles, um, you know, big ideas that are important for endurance runners. Yeah. I'll, I mean, my, my first thing is like, you got to say it depends, but, um, (laughs) but I think, yes, I think the, I think, I think let's start with principles. And this is like, this is again, where I, where I always start at first is the consistency aspect of things. If you really almost no matter what you want to get good at, you have to be consistent if you're going to get good at something. If you're doing something once every two weeks, you're you're not going to ingrain those habits and the the adaptations that are necessary to actually get good at whatever it is you're doing. So from from that perspective, if you want to become a good runner, you have to consistently be doing something that is going to make you better as a runner. That doesn't mean you have to run every day, but then the the second principle is specificity. The more specificity you get in a certain task, the better off you're going to be as well. So the individuals, generally speaking, and there's there's exceptions to all rules, but generally speaking, the individuals who run more are generally the individuals who are better off or better runners. The challenge, again, with, with running is that you it, – it's, again, it's really damaging. So you really have to be careful with the amount of running you're truly doing so this is where the cross training stuff comes in, right? Where like the cycling, I, what's crazy about cycling is that I can go and do like, like low to mid to high zone two, and maybe even into that zone three. 
and then bounce back from it the next day and do a really hard VO2 max workout and then bounce back from that the next day and do another like moderately challenging long zone two workout. I wouldn't be able to do that in running. It would have to be like zone one, really easy, maybe a threshold workout and then another really, really easy zone, zone one sort of workout. So, but the thing is, is that if you're, if you use cycling as cross training, then you can start to say, okay, well maybe because my body can't handle that high intensity stuff right now in terms of running, maybe I'll do a lot of easy running, you know, to gain volume and, and those sort of things. But then I'll do some higher intensity stuff on, on, you know, different days when I want to get that higher intensity stimulus. So that's another, so that might be a principle. I'm not a hundred percent sure if I want to add it to the principles yet, but I think that you need to do easy stuff and you need to do hard stuff. I think, I think that is a, a, a just a principle of life. Um, but from a, from a, an endurance perspective, and this doesn't, I'm not, I'm not saying go out and do polarized training. I'm just saying you need to do easy stuff and you need to do hard stuff. We've, we've just talked about this. If you're only doing hard stuff, you're not going to optimize your uh, potential. If you're only doing easy stuff, you're still going to leave, you know, performance on the table. So you have to do easy stuff and hard stuff. That's three, I guess that's kind of in the, into the specificity sort of side of things. So that's, that's two a, um, and then along with the specificity, if you're racing, for example, a marathon, you should in the beginning of, you know, say a train, like your, your training year, you can be very general about like what you're doing. You could be doing more cycling, a little bit less running, just a general aerobic development. But as you get closer to whatever race, it has to become more and more specific to that race. So I've made the mistake in the past. And this is when, you know, I was a, a researcher looking at the, at the studies and being like, Oh, high intensity interval stuff seems to be pretty good for performance. I was doing um, some trail races, like 18, like 10 to 20 mile trail races, but I would only do high intensity sprint work on the treadmill really. And then I'd go and I'd do like the incline, you know, as my like long workout. And I think I had six consecutive races where I had to stop because I cramped up so bad during the races. And it wasn't because I was not hydrated enough or, or other things like that. It's because I was asking my body to do something that it was not familiar enough with. So then it started cramping as a protective mechanism for me not to get injured. I was so strong, you know, during those sort of uh, things, but I was only doing, you know, the, the, the treadmill work. So from a specificity standpoint, I wasn't doing what I should have been doing, which is more of that threshold, you know, sort of style work more, maybe like half marathon, marathon race pace sort of work. Um, so that comes into the specificity and then you have to progress. So, you know, it, and this progression, there's not a, 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 a best rule for it, but I definitely think with running, um, it's maybe one to 3% in terms of the, the training load. So both volume and intensity that you're undertaking. Um, and this could be maybe even every two weeks or so, depending on who you are, where you're at. So does that kind of answer your question? I think, I think the, it's, it's the, the three principles that I almost always exclusively look at. And then, um, and then from there, you know, you can start to get a little, a, a little tweaky fancy with it, right. In terms of the specificity. So you say, okay, well, 
I noticed that maybe my, my, like I went and I got some physiology testing because I was at that point in my, in my training where I was like, okay, it warrants some physiology testing. My VO2 max was actually pretty low and my, my second threshold was butted up right against that. Like there, there's nothing wrong with that, but if your VO2 max is limiting your second threshold, then maybe you need to do some VO2 max work to actually bump that up. So again, specificity, that's a specificity of physiological adaptation, not a specificity for racing. But I think, you know, that it, it all kind of plays into it. I love it. That was great. Yeah. I, I think it very much tracks my training philosophy. Um, you know, I, I love your, your point of you need to do things that are hard and you need to do things that are easy. And that sounds like super simple, but you know, the way I think about that and, and kind of implement that in, in my coaching philosophy is, you know, I think of intensity existing on this spectrum, right? Mm-hmm. You know, on the one side you have maximum velocity, hundred percent effort sprints. On the other side, you've got your super easy zone one shuffle. Mm-hmm. I think most runners should spend most of their time on both ends of that spectrum. Let's do strides, hill strides, hill sprints, you know, what Jack Daniels might call an R or repetition workout, mm-hmm. very short reps, but very fast. And then we're also doing a lot of easy running, you know, high volume. We're always building that aerobic metabolism. Uh, and then the workouts, you know, can be like those short reps. It can be a lot of threshold work, half marathon pace. And in the middle is where I get the most cautious. This Mm -hmm. is when you're doing 800 meter thousand mile repetitions at 5k pace or, or some Mm -hmm. VO2 max effort, long reps at a VO2 max effort. And that's where you can get the, the really high injury risks that's where, you know, you'd really just get burned out more from your training. Mm -hmm. And so when I see, you know, for example, that study, eight weeks of two VO two max workouts a week, I'm like, Oh man, that is either going to leave runners injured, burned out, or they might have like a week where they can like run a PR and, Mm -hmm. you know, they're feeling great, but then they sort of fizzle out afterward. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this concept is sort of gets down to, um, I don't know if you've ever read that book training for the uphill athlete, I think it's really fantastic. You should check it out. Okay. Uh, and they talk about capacity versus utilization. And so this really changed how I think about workouts. And, and really, you know, if you were to simplify what you get from certain running workouts, um, you know, capacity workouts are basically lactate threshold and slower. Mm-hmm. They're aerobic. They build your capacity for more training. You're getting more mitochondrial development. You're you're improving your body's ability to both use and shuttle lactate. Um, It's essentially just improving your body's ability to run more and do harder training in the future. Mm -hmm. And then there's utilization workouts, which are like, you know, those VO2 max workouts. And those help you get more efficient with the fitness you already have. Mm-hmm. where the capacity builds your fitness and you need both obviously. But I think if we're going to focus on one or the other, most of the time we should be focusing on building our capacity and just being a little bit more cautious with a lot of those utilization workouts. Mm-hmm. So I think ultimately I'm, I'm a little bit more of like a developmental coach. Okay. I, I like to develop athletes rather than getting super specific all the time. You know, like I have runners be like, why am I doing a threshold workout? I'm running a a 5k. And I'm like, well, 
because threshold workouts make you into a better runner. Mm -hmm. That's why we're going to do them. You know, they're improving so many physiological aspects of, of your body and your ability. We shouldn't ignore that so that we can only do 5k pace workouts. Right. Right. I, I know it's, I like that, that capacity versus utilization. And I, I, as we're speaking, I released a podcast today where, um, the, the guest was talking about, you know, capacity or I, I can't remember. I think he calls it capacity utilization. So like a, a certain percentage of whatever capacity you actually have and how it's, it's different based on, you know, different athletes, for example, elite level athletes, right? Like a, like a, a, a borderline sub two marathoner can run at their second threshold at 96% of their second threshold for two hours. Whereas, you know, mere mortals, we might be like an hour or something like that. So he was talking, you know, kind of, I, I think to the same sort of idea is that developing your capacity by doing more of that, that threshold work, pushing that threshold high or doing other things like that, you're going to accumulate a lot less fatigue, especially in running compared to, you know, like going out and pounding on the track and doing, you know, like the traditional, uh, you know, five minutes on five minutes off, you know, mile repeats. And this is what we see. Um, I, I was actually, I was fortunate enough. I was coached, um, a, I, I coached an athlete who is in high school right now for cross country or over the summer. And then she, you know, trained with her, with her coach the rest of the, the fall, but she qualified for the Nike nationals. And one of the things we were really, really worried about, or at least I was worried about was her, over racing and over implementation of VO2 max training throughout the season. Because what you see is that pretty much at the, at the very beginning of the season, what a lot of coaches like to do is like, okay, we're going to start, you know, doing some more VO2 max work. And they try to fit in, you know, like two workouts, maybe like a week where it's like VO2 max and then a really hard 5k race or something like that. And those would, I would both say are probably a little bit more on the utilization, um, you know, side of things. And for her, I was like, okay, well, we only need her to maximize her performance for uh, states because we wanted to win states and then the Nike regional. And, and, and there was one more race like during the season where she wanted to do really, really well. So I kind of like, as opposed to saying, oh, you're not racing, you know, we would say, okay, what I want you to do is just beat the girl by one second. Like, you know, so you're not doing a VO2 max workout. It is more of that threshold workout. So we can extend that period of time that you're actually building your capacity throughout the season. So then when you get to the end of the season, you're not, you know, so burnt out that you don't want to do it anymore because that's when the most important things are, are happening. Yeah. You know, this, this very much reminds me of, of my own cross country seasons, both <laughs> when I was in high school and in college, because, you know, I, I, I think in hindsight, I had really good coaches and they knew that our teams were pretty good and that we were going to be in the postseason, and we needed to really save our best performances for November instead of early or mid September. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of our early season races were like, okay, uh, you've got a 5k, we are going to run the first two miles kind of at threshold, you know, uh, in dual meets, we would often run with the, with the, first runner on the other team because we were, we were a fairly dominant team. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at the two mile mark would be like, all right, buddy, we got to go. We're going to start racing now. And then yeah. we would make the last mile hard or, 
Um, similar things in college during 8K cross country, we might take the first three miles easy and then really race the last two. It was just a way to make the races a little bit easier. I think both physically and psychologically, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and that's probably a, a whole other conversation is like, you can't race to your maximum ability week after week for like three months solid. Mm-hmm. It is, it is psychologically draining. And that's one of the things that good coaches are going to do is they're going to save your, your mindset for when it really matters too. Mm-hmm. Cause it's not just about, you know, not doing VO two max work too much too soon in the beginning of a season. It's also not putting yourself in a position where you need to get as much out of your body as possible in every single race. Cause that is very fatiguing psychologically. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, you know, those, those, those early races, but they're also so much fun. It takes all this pressure off of yourself. Yep. I'm not racing this race. I'm sort of just doing it as a workout. And I think that saves you physically, mentally, and it's a lot more fun. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's actually with with my training, and I've been having some good success with this. Is I I only do one really hard specific workout a week, um, and that's right now. It's I, I'm I'm kind of in a VO two max development phase just because it's it's kind of off season, you know, other things like that, and it is hard to mentally get up for that. Like it. And the day afterwards, I definitely noticed my mental, you know, capacity was a little bit depleted as well. And what I, what I've told my, some of my athletes in the past is like, and I, I don't know, this might come from like Steve Magnus, but, um, there's, there's workouts that are, you know, controlled and there's races that are controlled. And then there's workouts that are go see God. Yeah. I think that might be a Steve Magnus. Yeah. 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 So I didn't, I don't, I'm not stealing it from him, but it's something I love because it's like, okay, I want you seeing the shiny light, you know, coming down trying to like pick you up after this workout, but you only have maybe a handful of those per year, if not less than that. So, you know, so that's why it's important, right. To, to really understand your athlete and say, okay, well, when is it appropriate to, to push them to that mental limit? Because, Again, if you're doing it week in and week out and then you're not following that up with adequate rest, then it's really, really hard to to maintain that. So I love the fact that you touch on, you know, not only the physical side, but the mental side of things, because um, it, it's something I think we're getting better as a society of talking about is, you know, especially in training or, or like my PhD, for example, was really mentally draining because there was no reprieve. It, I, I tell people it was like sprinting a marathon for four years. Um, and it was one of those things where, you know, if you don't get good at taking the easy days easy and the hard days hard, then, you know, you, you lose track of that. And you're essentially, you know, if it, it like, in, and this is an application to work, you're essentially working in zone three every single day. It's, it's kind of mentally draining. It's kind of physically fatiguing, but you're never getting enough recovery. And then when you go to try to do other things where it's hard, you, you can't, your body, your body won't let you get up for it. So I think, I think that is something that is a, it, it, this is why I love sport and I love, you know, like endurance training and stuff because there's so many connections to real world and how you go about, you know, approaching your day or uh, approaching different tasks within your day. Because if you're learning correctly how to implement endurance training, you can then take it and you can apply it to your life and you actually have much better outcomes. I've ever since my PhD got over, I've been really, really trying to be like, okay, 
if I'm going to have, you know, like marathon recording days for podcasts and stuff, I have to follow that up with days of, 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 of less stress in terms of, you know, like, like wanting to impress people on the podcast, making sure you're prepped for the podcast, other things like that. So, um, yeah. What are your thoughts on, on that? <laughs> I, I think you're a hundred percent right. And if I wasn't a runner, I don't think I would be as successful in other areas of my life because mm-hmm. it taught me, yeah, that value of, you know, hard, easy days. Mm-hmm. If you have a hard day, you're going to need an easy day the next day. And that's true professionally as it is athletically. And, and you're absolutely right. If I have a day where, you know, I'm going to batch record a couple videos and go on a podcast and I'm putting the finishing touches on, um, you know, a, a monthly column for trail runner magazine, and I've got two coaching calls, I might need to go for a long trail run the next day mm-hmm. and clear my head because mm-hmm. that that's just been a, a really difficult day for me. And, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the number of people who have come from sport and use their lessons to, you know, go coach executives at fortune 500 companies is just very indicative of the fact that if you get good at a sport, you are learning lessons that are then applicable to almost every area of your life. And it was funny when you were talking about getting your PhD and and making sure that every day wasn't super hard and giving yourself rest days. Cause I'm like, are you describing parenting right now? Cause it sounds (laughs) the same. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No. And, and that's, that, that is something that I'm just trying to learn and teach myself is like, and it's really hard for, I mean, you can, you can speak to as an entrepreneur as well, right? You're always, there's always a list that is longer than what you actually can do in a given day. So you have to learn how to prioritize. You have to learn how to, um, you know, choose what is going to move the needle forward as much as possible while also allowing me to maintain my sanity. And that's like, I do a hybrid of things now where it's like I train every day, but you know, sometimes it's easier. For example, today it was like, I got on the bike and it was laughably easy. Like I had, you know, I had a conversation like this with my fiance and you know, it was, it's great because it got the blood moving. I was able to enjoy it. I had coming off of a couple hard days. Um, and you know, but I also knew that I was going, you know, I, I wanted to perform well for like the, the two podcast episodes that I was going to be recording too. So, um, yeah, it's, it is amazing all the parallels and it's really cool. So I, I, I want to switch gears just a second because you're the name of your company is strength running. And we have not talked about strength training other than the one video that I, that I talked about watching. So with the, with the last little bit of time, how, how do you approach strength training and has, has that changed based on research that has come out saying, Oh, well maybe heavy lifting plyometrics, other things like that is more beneficial for you know, performance variable changes. Yeah. My thoughts on strength training have certainly evolved substantially, even from, you know, 10 years ago, I used to think that runners didn't need to do any strength training, especially for their legs, because, Hey, we're exercising our legs Mm -hmm. every day when we go running, but that is the silliest perspective to have. (laughs) I think the science is pretty clear that weightlifting is very beneficial for endurance runners. Mm -hmm. I would say that when I first started strength running in 2010, I was much more focused on body weight strength routines and and really pulling from the world of physical therapy Mm -hmm. to do a lot of that work as prehab. So early on, my philosophy was 
let's do a ton of this body weight strength work as prehab so that we can stay healthy. Again, we want to drive that consistency as, as, as much as we can and layering on that kind of strength work onto an already well-designed running program is probably one of the best ways that you can stay healthy. You know, like number one, let's get your training right. And then number two, let's start strength training. Mm -hmm. Um, but I would say maybe five or six years ago, I really started recognizing the power of heavier weightlifting, plyometrics, more power-based movements. And, and this really, you know, I was just reading more about forces and like force development. And, and if you want to be fast, you need to be able to impart a lot of force into the ground. Mm -hmm. And so what does that actually mean? That's really a function of power and power is really strength times speed. And if you don't have strength, you, you know, you, you can't really do much with your speed. Mm -hmm. You're probably going to get hurt. So now I very much have a strength training philosophy that is a bit of a hybrid of both. Like we are going to get in the gym. We are going to do some heavier weightlifting. We are going to add in plyometrics in a very methodical way. Mm -hmm. You know, as someone who likes plyometrics and recognizes that they can be really good at, at getting you to use your body more uh, economically. I also recognize that the injury risk with plyos is much higher than say your, you know, easy zone two running. So we've mm -hmm. got to be kind of careful with that. Um, but the heavier weightlifting is something that uh, is, I think, while at the same time it's extraordinarily beneficial for runners, it's also not something that we have to do super regularly. I think, you know, modeling our strength training in the gym after what bodybuilders do is, is, is not the right approach. You know, we really can get most of the benefits of weightlifting with two sessions a week. Uh, I, I think two sessions a week is plenty, especially if you're training for a race, you're not really going to be able to do three hard weightlifting workouts a week. That's mm -hmm. probably going to cut into your ability to run and train well from a running perspective. Um, but twice a week, 45, 60 minutes of focus on the fundamentals. You know, I love exercises like squats and deadlifts and, mm -hmm. you know, presses, uh, and, and of course, the, all those exercises have a lot of variations among them. Mm -hmm. um, so if you're getting in the gym twice a week, what I like to see the other days of the week, let's, let's just say you run seven days a week, twice a week, you're going to be doing weightlifting in the gym. The other five days a week, I, I want to see you sandwich your runs in between a dynamic warm up and a tw 10 to 20 minute body weight strength routine. It doesn't have to be very hard. Uh, you're probably just doing body weight exercises. Maybe you're using something like an exercise band, maybe an exercise, um, uh, a medicine ball, but you're otherwise not doing very challenging strength workouts. Those are reserved for the gym. Those mm -hmm. are sort of like your speed workouts for the week, your harder workouts, but your zone two for strength <laughs> is these body weight workouts. Yeah. And you know, this is where we're pulling from the world of physical therapy just to do a lot of things that. You know, if you've ever been to a PT's office, you're probably very familiar with doing a lot of lateral leg raises and clamshells and glute bridges Single and, leg glute and bridges. side planks. <laughs> a lot of these exercises, you know, you know, you can read studies that say, you know, if you want strong abs, you should squat because the ab activation is so much higher in a heavy squat. Mm -hmm. and, and then again, I kind of put on my coach's hat and I'm like, yes, that's true, but we're going to do both because we can't squat heavy every single day. Right. And I think some of the postural benefits that we get from a lot of the body weight exercises, um, because some of them are 
like isometric exercises. You're, you're really just holding a position. And a lot of the times when we're running, we're holding certain mm-hmm. positions. Like when we're in the stance phase of the gait cycle, we need to be able to hold that position at speed while our body is undergoing all these different forces, rotational forces. We really need to make sure, you know, I'll borrow a phrase from a prior podcast guest. We need to be able to steer our ship. Mm-hmm. If we are accurately steering our ship, despite all these forces, we're doing a good job. And that does require a lot of strength. So that's basically my strength training philosophy in a nutshell. Let's lift heavy weights twice a week. Let's sandwich our runs. We got a dynamic warm up. That's really not strength training, although some strength exercises are included. Mm-hmm. And then we're going to do about a 15 minute body weight strength workout after each one of our runs. You know, not only is that going to improve our strength, but it also acts as a nice cool down after running. And it's just a lot easier than going from, you know, say workout to sitting in your office desk chair. I think anyone who's done that has gotten up after an hour and realized that their body just feels terrible. Mm-hmm. They're nice and tight and, and you know, their, their legs feel super heavy. So the strength workouts give us a lot more than simply strength. Mm-hmm. I 100% agree. And going back to that, you know, easy and hard, and you have to do both. That's exactly what it is. Right. And, um, no, I, I, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna say anything else about it because I think you did a perfect job of summing that up. Um, I will, if, do you have any, I'm sure you have a bunch of YouTube videos on it. Do you have any YouTube videos that could give listeners who are interested, you know, maybe a, a basic, you know, strength training sort of guide and then, uh, the, like a, a prehab sort of thing. I can, I can link, I think I have the same video. Um, but if we had those two for people, I think that would be really valuable. And I'll just put those in the show notes, uh, down below for anyone who's interested. Um, yeah, I'll put together some, some resources for you. Cause I certainly awesome. have both videos and more in-depth articles that might provide a little bit extra context and flavor around, awesome how to think about your strength training as an endurance runner. Cause I think, you know, there, there's so many aspects to it that we have not even gone over, you know, I like know. running economy, like, you know, there's the whole longevity aspect of it. Um, you know, uh, last month I turned 40 and I need to be strength training more regularly now that I'm a master's runner, because as soon as guys hit 40, their muscle loss really starts to accelerate. So yeah. there's a lot of things that we need to think about as runners, particularly aging runners, Um, and yeah, let me, let me send you some good resources for that. Awesome. Yeah, I, I would appreciate that. And I'm sure a lot of the listeners would appreciate it too. Uh, I will, this is Jason, this has been an awesome conversation. I really appreciate you coming on the podcast and, um, I, I appreciate your support because, uh, you know, I, I'm a little podcast. You're, you're a a big podcast with a big following and everything like that. And you've allowed me to come onto your platform and you've came onto this platform as well. So I, I really, really appreciate it. And, I'm hoping that, you know, this is a, this is a start of a, a, a long working relationship that we can have because uh, you, you share a lot of amazing information. And I hope that with my physiology background, I can kind of fill in some of the, you know, maybe the gaps where people are like, oh, well, I want to know more of the why. Um, so, so I, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for coming on. Oh, thanks, Phil. It was a super fun conversation. And, and likewise, I mean, I think, one of the things that I love because I'm such a running nerd is that I just love surrounding myself with all the people that might be sitting around a table 
helping the best runner in the world optimize their training. So, Mm -hmm. you know, you've got your exercise physiologist and your strength coach and your sports psychologist and physical therapist and all these people who are advising the athlete on how to maximize their potential. Mm -hmm. I just love being around those kinds of people and having those conversations. And you just do such an amazing job of making some of these physiological uh, physiology concepts digestible for the average runner. Because look, I'm, I'm not running a physiology lab over Mm -hmm. here. I am coaching runners. I am communicating and educating runners on different topics. So I certainly rely on folks like you to fill in those gaps, like you said, and, and help me with the science so that I can map it onto the the day-to-day training Mm -hmm. that my runners are doing. So thanks for what you do. And, uh, yeah, I hope folks have, have enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, no, I'm sure, I'm sure they will. If, if you guys have any questions, uh, if you're on YouTube, leave a comment down below and, uh, we can actually tag, tag Jason cause he has his own YouTube channel. So if it is directed at him, uh, what's your YouTube channel name actually? Uh, I think it's just strength running. Yep. So, so do, do an at strength running. I'll put, again, I'll put that in the show notes and then you can find, uh, Jason on Instagram, probably any other social media at, uh, it's Jason Fitzgerald, but I think most of them are at strength running. Yeah. So actually my Twitter and Instagram are Jason Fitz one. Okay. And then, you know, the podcast is the strength running podcast. I think strengthrunning.com. And then the YouTube channel is just strength running. Awesome. Yeah. I'll, I'll have that all sorted out for the, for the show notes as well. Um, you guys can, as always find me on Instagram at critical O2. If you have any questions about, you know, this conversation or any of the other conversations I have on the podcast or anything like that, let me know. Uh, and we'll catch you guys in the next one.